ಪಾರ್ಥಯ ಪ್ರತಿಬೋಧಿ ಭಗವತ ನಾರಾಯಣ ಸ್ವಯಂ ವ್ಯಾಸೇನ ಗ್ರಥಿ ಪುರಾಣ ಮುನಿ ಮಧ್ಯೆ ಮಹಾಭಾರತ ಅದ್ವೈತಮೃತವರ್ಷಿಣಿ ಭಗವತಿ ಅಷ್ಟಾದಶಾಧ್ಯಾಯಿ ಅಂಬತ್ವಾಮನುಸಂದಧಾಮಿ ಭಗವತ್ ಗೀತೆಷಿಣಿ ಯಂ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮವರುಣೇಂದ್ರರುದ್ರಮರುತ ಸ್ತುನ್ವಂತಿ ದಿವ್ಯೈಸ್ತವೈ ವೇದೈಸ್ಸಾಂಗಪದಕ್ರಮೋಪನಿಷದೈ ಗಾಯಂತಿ ಯಂ ಸಾಮಗಾ ಧ್ಯಾನವಸ್ಥಿತದ್ಗತೇನ ಮನಸ ಪಶ್ಯಂತಿ ಯೋಗಿನ ಯಾಂತನ್ನ ವಿದುಸುರಸುರಗಣ ದೇವಾಯ ತಸ್ಮೈ ನಮಃ it was said yesterday how lord who is the creator of the universe and therefore omniscient omnipotent how he takes incarnation assumes a human form in this case the form of lord krishna as i said incarnation is not always human form it is an appropriate form required for serving fulfilling a given purpose in this case the form was that of lord krishna a human form mainly lokanugraham kurvan mainly to bless the people in order to uh, help the people because there was adharma or the non righteousness which had become all the evil forces had become very predominant and therefore the uh, right tendencies or the uh, what we call the uh, the sattvic or the divine tendencies needed to be protected <coughs> and for that as well as for maintaining this tradition of dharma to, to bring into order again the dharma or the values was the purpose of the incarnation is the purpose of any incarnation and therefore even though lord krishna as god doesn't have any personal objective to achieve because he is complete in any in all respects even then bhutan jigrukshaya merely out of compassion for the beings compassion for the people he imparted this teaching to arjuna enable any proper disciple so that this teaching is available to the mankind <coughs> thus it is here is an attempt to establish the authenticity or validity of bhagavad gita as a scripture bhagavad gita is accepted as a scripture because it is something that is revealed or given out by lord himself and therefore it is valid and that is how bhagavad gita is looked upon in the vedic tradition or the tradition of vedanta as pramanam as a valid means of knowledge all right lord krishna taught this to arjuna but if a given teaching or the work does not receive recognition from learned people then perhaps it may not be held in high reverence a book for example that is published if it wins a certain award then we know that it it is a book which is something authentic or something which has a certain standard similarly also 
this teaching of Bhagavad Gita, which was given out by Lord to Arjuna, did it receive any attention? Did it receive any recognition? Or did it receive any acceptance by the learned people? Says, yes. Tam dharmam bhagavata yathopadishtam vedavyasaha sarvagnyaha bhagavan gita akshehi saptavihi shlokasatahi upanivabandha. That very same teaching. And what is the teaching? Dharmadvayam, the twofold dharma. What is dharma? That which sustains a life. That which sustains a universe. That order, which is twofold, the path of pravritti and the path of nevritti, the path of activity and the path of renunciation, meaning the path of seeking knowledge, this twofold dharma, yatha upadishtam bhagavata, as it was imparted by the Lord to Arjuna, was sarvagniha bhagavan vedavyasaha gita akhyehi saptavihi slokasatehi upanibabandha. That very same teaching as it was, was taken by Vedavyasa, who is the author of a great epic called Mahabharata. So this Mahabharata, Ramayana are called the epics and Mahabharata is the longest and the greatest epics anywhere in the world, consisting of 100,000 verses and it is considered to be the fifth Veda in India. Vedas are four. Rugveda, Yajurveda, Samaveda, Atharvaveda, these are four Vedas. But Mahabharata is so great and contains uh, what the human being needs in every field of endeavor that it is given the status of what we call fifth Veda. It is said, whatever is not there in Mahabharata is nowhere else to be found. And whatever you find anywhere else is nothing but what is already there in, in Mahabharata. So, in this kind of reverence, the text or epic called Mahabharata is held in India. And the author of Mahabharata is considered to be Veda Vyasa. Vyasa is also the compiler of all the Vedas. And he is is the one who is the author of this Mahabharata. And therefore, Vyasa is is regarded in a very high reverence. He himself is considered to be an incarnation of God. I mean, he is held in such high reverence. This Veda Vyasa, in the most exalted work called Mahabharata, in the very middle of the Mahabharata, Veda Vyasa chose to place this Bhagavad Gita. Pasaya Pratibodhitam Bhagavata Narayane Naswayam. This Bhagavad Gita, which was imparted by Lord Himself to Parsa or to Arjuna. Vyasena Grasitam Puranamunina Madhye Mahabharatam. That very same Gita has been placed in the middle of Mahabharata, this epic, by Vedavyasa, the author, Purana Muni, who is a great sage. So this great sage and the ancient sage, or the sage who has composed all the Puranas, he has placed his Bhagavad Gita right in the middle of Mahabharata. If you can look upon Mahabharata as a necklace, then Bhagavad Gita, which uh, which uh, which uh, adorns Mahabharata in the middle can be compared to a pendant hanging from the necklace. So Mahabharata, this Bhagavad Gita really is like a great jewel which shines in this this necklace of Mahabharata. <coughs> and that shows also that this teaching of Bhagavad Gita has received the greatest of recognition. 
by one of the greatest sages of India, one of the greatest of the ancient sages, and he chose to take this Bhagavad Gita and place it in the middle of this greatest epic shows that this teaching has received the recognition of the sages and the, the, the great seers of India. And therefore also it, it gains a further validity. So Shankaracharya shows how Bhagavad Gita has the validity that it is given out by none other than Lord himself. It is imparted to none less than Arjuna who is a very capable disciple and then again it is something that is recognized as, as the most important by Veda Vyasa who chose to place it in the middle of his epic called Mahabharata. And therefore we say that Bhagavad Gita is a Pramana Grantha. Pramana Aptavacharam. Aptavacharam means the words of the learned or the words of the wise are also considered to be Pramanam or a right me, valid means of knowledge. So Vedantins accept the six valid means of knowledge. One is perception, the knowledge of the perception, that is the most primary. Second is inference, we infer something based on something that you perceive, like inferring the fire by perception of smoke, because wherever smoke is, fire must be. So when you perceive smoke, you infer the presence of fire. This is called inferential knowledge, also considered to be valid knowledge. And third is presumption, fourth is comparison, fifth is the, uh, the absence even, the non-perception. And sixth is considered to be Shabda or the words of the wise. And therefore, Bhagavad Gita, that's called Aptavacharam, that is the words or the instruction of the wise. And Bhagavad Gita falls in that category because it is, it is the words, it, they are the words of Param Apta, meaning the Lord Himself who is wise in a perfect sense. <coughs> And also, what is the subject matter of Bhagavad Gita? That also gives it that status. Say Shankarajara, Tadidam Gita Shastram, Samastha Vedartha Sarasangrahamutam, Durvijnayasam. This Gita Shastram, Samastha Vedartha Sarasangrahamutam, which is like the Sangraha, like the very Sara, the very essence. So Bhagavad Gita represents the collection of the very essence of the entire Vedic teaching. As we said, Vedas are looked upon as the most sacred text. And the very essence of the Veda is epitomized or is, is brought here in the Bhagavad Gita. So Bhagavad Gita is yesterday described that if all the Upanishads are, Upanishads are compared to different cows, then Bhagavad Gita is the milk of these cows, meaning the essence of all the Upanishads. And therefore, Bhagavad Gita presents before us the essence of the entire teaching of the Vedas. Samastha Vedartha the essence of all the Vedas has been collected here and that is Bhagavad Gita. Durvignayartham and something that is extremely difficult to comprehend. Actually, the language of Bhagavad Gita is very simple and the verses also appear or sound very simple and still the, the purport of the verses is something extremely difficult to comprehend. <coughs> Therefore, now Shankaracharya writes here, why does he write a commentary on Bhagavad Gita? Having said what Bhagavad Gita is, as the essence of the entire Vedas, now he proceeds to tell us what was the need on his part to write Bhashya or commentary on Bhagavad Gita. 
सेजर तत् तदर्थ आविष्करणाय अनेक ही विवृत पद पदार्थवाक्या संयमी अत्यंत विरुद्ध अनेकार्थन लौकिक गृह्यमाण उपलभ्य से शंकराचार्य दट मेनी पीपल हैव कॉमेंटेड अपॉन भगवदगीता सो दिभाष्य और कॉमेंट्री ऑफ शंकराचार्य इज नॉट द फर्स्ट कॉमेंट्री शंकराचार्य हिमसेल्फ से द नंबर ऑफ पीपल हैव कॉमेंटेड अपॉन भगवदगीता एंड टू राइट अ कॉमेंट्री दर आर सडन दर इज अ सडन कन्वेंशन विच दर एज टू फॉलो इन ऑर्डर टू क्वालिफाइड एज कॉमेंट्री यू मस्ट एक्सप्लेन द वर्ड्स यू मस्ट एक्सप्लेन द मीनिंग ऑफ द वर्ड्स यू मस्ट गिव द प्रोज ऑर्डर यू मस्ट गिव द विग्रह द ब्रेक ऑफ द वेरियस कंपाउंड वर्ड्स यू मस्ट एक्सप्लेन एवरी वर्ड यू मस्ट टेल द मीनिंग ऑफ द स्टेटमेंट यू मस्ट ऑल्सो से वॉट इज द सिद्धांत और the principle involved there. And if there is some puro paksha or the the opposite point of view, that also you must state and refute that. So there is a certain trend you must follow in writing commentary upon a text. Shankaracharya says that many commentaries do exist upon Bhagavad Gita, and looking at the very structure of the commentary, they do satisfy the basic criteria of a commentary. and they are very voluminous also there are quite elaborate commentaries existing on bhagavad gita as shankaracharya says but then he says we find atyanta viruddha anekarsatvena but we find that when people study those commentaries they in fact come to variety of conclusions which are quite contrary to each other meaning that the commentaries that exist or that obtain at the moment they have only confused the people they seem to bring out all kinds of contradictory meanings and when people study those commentaries they only come out with great confusion and lots of contradictions in them this is what shankaracharya says we find and therefore aham vivekatah arthanirdha nirdharanartham sankshepatah vivaranam karishyami and therefore i am now going to write a brief commentary on bhagavad gita not an elaborate commentary but a brief commentary on bhagavad gita in order to ascertain the true meaning the purport of the bhagavad gita with viveka meaning with a discriminative analysis so we should provide the reasoning as to why the bhagavad gita and the verses must be interpreted the way we have interpreted and thus with proper explanation and reasoning now we shall proceed to explain briefly the purport of bhagavad gita by this commentary <coughs> having justified the reason as to why this commentary is written written now shankaracharya briefly explains what is the subject matter of bhagavad gita what is it that bhagavad gita seeks to uh, seeks to convey and what is the purpose of this knowledge as we discussed in the beginning of tatvavada itself it is customary this to discuss these four factors called anubandha chatushtaya one is vishaya what is the content or the subject matter or the theme second is prayojanam what is the purpose of this knowledge third adhikari who is the one to whom this text is addressed and fourth sambandha having gained the knowledge what needs to be done in order to accomplish that purpose <coughs> so these four four factors must also be explained and we say it is necessary it is like a preface 
when we before beginning to read a book we always read the preface to determine what is it the author plans to discuss and whether and what's the purpose of this discussion etc and then if it interests fine we may proceed to read the book otherwise we may set aside there are a number of books that we receive and we keep them aside reading the preface we find that we are not interested and sometimes you may find them interesting and you may go through the book so this is preface in the preface it is customary to give these four factors and shankaracharya briefly explains these factors here tasya asya gita shastrasya sankshepatah prayojanam param nishrayasam sahetukasya samsarasya atyanta uparam lakshanam what is the prayojanam what is the purpose of this bhagavad gita what is the purpose of this what is the purpose with which lord krishna imparted the teaching to arjuna this is very important to determine because in bhagavad gita in more than one places we find lord krishna as though telling arjuna there were hey arjuna you fight so very often people feel that bhagavad gita is nothing but a talk on the part of lord krishna to prompt arjuna to fight this battle so to motivate arjuna into fighting the battle is the purpose of bhagavad gita so some people believe because after the teaching of bhagavad gita arjuna did start fighting the battle he did fight the battle and so and then in bhagavad gita you find more than one places tasmad yuddhasva bharata he bharata he arjuna may you therefore fight and there were some people some people interpret the purport of bhagavad gita as an instruction to arjuna to motivate him to fight some other people believe that the thrust of bhagavad gita is an instruction of karma or uh, on the on the action in life and shankaracharya tells us what is the purpose of bhagavad gita it says nishrayasam prayojanam the purpose is nishrayasam to obtain the ultimate good of life nishrayasam that good which is what we call ultimate which is as you said what the man is seeking what is man seeking is called nishrayasam nishchitam shreya nishrayasa shreya means good nishchitam shreya the definite good so definite unequivocal doubtless definite good that a human being is seeking to provide him that good or provide him that end is the purpose of bhagavad gita what is human being seeking as we have discussed he is seeking happiness what happiness limitless he is seeking freedom unconditional freedom unconditional happiness he is seeking to be free from all the bondage he is seeking to be limitless this is what human being is seeking and also that goal must be such that having attained that nothing remains to be attained further it should not be a goal that having once attained it may even slip away from your hand so very often we do attain happiness in our life but the happiness comes and then goes away also is like taking a medicine and curing a disease but then it is not the last time that you suffer from the disease the disease can come back again and so medicine does not necessarily definitely and certainly remove the disease it is likely that disease goes away for a time and then can come back or swarga or the heavens provides the happiness all right but that is the result of some meritorious rites that you perform and when the result of the merits gets exhausted again you are back into this this whole rut and man is not interested in that he is not interested in some temporary happiness although he may settle for it as a different thing 
we may settle for less than what we are interested in is a different thing because we may have no hope at all but as we said if we had a choice we would not want to settle for anything less than the limitless that is urge so nishrayas meaning the limitless the total freedom or unconditional happiness that we are seeking that param nishrayasam that limitless is prayojanam to provide what we call the salvation not salvar liberation that liberation is the moksha is the purpose of bhagavad gita so gita is moksha shastra meaning the purpose of bhagavad gita is moksha liberation and nothing less than that and nothing other than that also and what do you mean by moksha sahetukasya samsarasya atyanta uparam lakshanam that you want to be liberated from all kinds of suffering so what is samsara samsara is nothing but this series of suffering and therefore a total cessation total and once and once for once and for all total and final cessation of all the suffering is what human being is seeking that's another way to look that everyone is seeking a total and ultimate cessation of all the suffering but when can suffering go suffering can only go when its cause is eliminated the pain that we have or the suffering that we have the grief etc that we feel in life is a product of something else is what we call an effect like anger that we experience anger is a product or an effect of something else effect of what some kind of a desire or a demand and similarly also the sadness or the grief that we experience in our life what there must be a cause for it only when the cause goes that the effect will be eliminated and so merely elimination of grief is not enough but grief along with its cause must go for example every night when you fall asleep or in deep sleep we are totally free from grief in the state of deep sleep when i am unconscious also or there is no experience of grief at all but when i wake up in the morning again there is grief waiting for me there and therefore it is not the total cessation of grief it is only a temporary suspension of grief even in our moments of happiness or in various escape distractions various activities that we perform what are we doing is that we are to- temporarily suspending that grief that is waiting and again we cannot be satisfied with that so the grief must go along with the cause in deep sleep the grief is not there but the cause is there what's the cause the ignorance that seed is there like if you remove the weeds only on the surface as long as the seed is left in the ground so long the weeds will again grow and similarly also as long as the seed of the suffering is there the suffering will come back sahetukasya samsarasya atyanta uparam lakshanam a total and ultimate cessation absolute cessation of the suffering along with its cause that is what and that is what is also meant by param nishrayasam when the suffering goes that happiness which is the nature of the self is owned up vedanta tells us again and again that happiness is not something to be acquired all we have to do is to remove the obstacle that stands between us and the happiness happiness is the nature of the self but some obstacle stands between me and that happiness even though it is my nature and what is that stands that ignorance and all the products of ignorance 
What is the product of ignorance? The ahankara, the sense of individuality. What's the next product? Mamakara, the sense of ownership or mindness. And what are the further products? The likes, dislikes, attachments, aversions and all kinds of things. So all of these are the products of ignorance. They are the things that stand between me and happiness, which is my true nature, or even liberation, which is my nature. So all we have to do in this case here is to remove the obstacle. It is not attainment of liberation or attainment of the limitlessness, but it is merely elimination of that which stands as an obstacle between me and the limitlessness. And therefore, the scriptures merely seek to remove the obstacle. Scriptures do not claim that we shall attain limitlessness. Scriptures do not even claim that we will reveal the self. Scriptures, what they do is, they, re- they merely enable us to remove the obstacle which stands between I as I find myself and I as I truly am. And therefore, so elimination of obstacle will reveal the true nature of the self which is limitless or which is happiness. <coughs> And therefore, the purpose of Bhagavad, the teaching of Bhagavad Gita is elimination of all the grief along with its cause so that human being can attain that ultimate good that he is seeking in his life. How do you attain that ultimate good? Or how do you eliminate that suffering with its cause? Tatcha sarva purvakat Atma-jnana-nishtha-rupad-dharmad-bhavati Shankaracharya says that how to remove the obstacle that stands between me and that ultimate nishreya the ultimate good? Atma-jnana-nishtha-rupad-dharmad By that dharma which is of the nature of Atma-jnana-nishtha Abidance in the knowledge of the self that abiding knowledge of the self that dharma or that way of life which is the nature of the abiding knowledge of a self that is that which is able to eliminate this suffering. What, what kind of knowledge? The atma-jnana-nishtha. Not merely the knowledge of the self but an abiding knowledge. The knowledge that has become spontaneous. And as we shall see how the knowledge also has various obstacles Ignorance is the first obstacle, doubt is the second obstacle, what we call the habitual error is the third obstacle. And when all these obstacles are eliminated, then knowledge becomes an abiding knowledge. Atma-jnana-nishtha-rupa-dharma The dharma of the nature of Atma-jnana-nishtha or an abidance in the knowledge of the self. <coughs> Therefore, the subject matter or the theme or the content of Bhagavad Gita is Atma-jnana-nishtha, how to gain an abiding knowledge of the self. And what can knowledge do? All that knowledge do can do is to remove ignorance, that's all. What can light do? All the light can do is to remove darkness. And similarly also, what can knowledge do? Just remove ignorance. And if what we call suffering is eliminated by elimination of ignorance, if it is claimed that suffering in the life is removed or eliminated by the, the attainment of knowledge, that only means that suffering is a product of ignorance. It's ignorance that deprives me 
of my own self. And therefore, removal of ignorance is what is sought here, and ignorance can be removed by the knowledge. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of the self. And therefore, it is knowledge of the self that removes that ignorance and the products of ignorance, and that is how the person becomes free or liberated. And therefore, the Vishaya, the subject matter of Bhagavad Gita is Atma Jnana or abiding knowledge of the self that removes what? Ignorance and therefore all the suffering which is the product of ignorance. So Prayojanam, the purpose is to relieve us from all the suffering. Moksha. Mahasuchaha. Release from grief. That's what we will find. That Bhagavad Gita begins with grief. Man is grieving. Whether that grief is vocal or it is silent. But there is grief constantly in human being. And freedom from that grief is what is sought here in Bhagavad Gita. So samsara or the suffering is expressed as grief. So very first chapter describes the grief of Arjuna. And it is not the grief that is peculiar to Arjuna. It is grief that every human being feels in one way or the other. And therefore, to relieve us or release us from, make us free from the grief by the knowledge of the self is the purpose of Bhagavad Gita. <coughs> Alright, if you say that the knowledge is the purpose of Bhagavad Gita, then how come Bhagavad Gita also discusses there are chapters and there are so many verses that deal with karma or the action? Huh, another thing that Shankaraja said, which I should have added, Sarva Karma Sanyasa Purvakat Atma Jnana Dharmat. Shankaraja says here that this Atma Jnana or that abidance in the knowledge of the self, must be what? Preceded by Sarva Karma Sanyasa Purvakat, by renunciation of all the duties. So this abidance in the knowledge necessarily calls for a renunciation of all the duties, of all the action. By action is meant renunciation of all the duties. Meaning renunciation of all the demands upon oneself. This, this concept of duty is, we have discussed earlier. We disc- what is duty is nothing but what I should be doing. It is a sense of obligation that I have. And therefore, that very sense of obligation places upon me a demand. For example, I find myself obliged to my parents. I feel that my parents have raised me, they have looked after me and so forth and so on and therefore I feel a duty towards them. I may feel duty towards my own family. If a person is married, towards wife and children, there would be a duty to to take care of them, look after them. One may also feel a duty towards perhaps one's society, one's country. There are different kinds of duties that a person has. Because we are receiving favor from all the various sources. When I think about my life, I find that I am what I am on account of the favor and the support that I have received from so many different sources. And the Vedas, in fact, recognize three kinds of these favors or the debts that we have incurred. The debt typically incurred from the parents and ancestors who have given us this body. 
and therefore he said Matru Devo Bhava, Pitru Devo Bhava. May you look upon your mother as God. May you look upon your father as God. See, when all these things are being said, my intention is to bring to you what is there in the tradition of the Vedas. It, you may find very often that what is being said here may not necessarily meet with your agreement or may contradict what you have been thought, what you have been brought up to believe or may contradict what you consider proper and it's quite possible. And in spite of that, I make it a point to say here, just for your information, there are certain things that you should know and not ne- and then think about it. So these are the things that are stated here in order that you can give a thought to them. They may be new or they may be funny, they may be orthodox, they may be uh, whatever, I don't know. So you may hold those views about what is being said. There is no, I mean, I have no objection to that. But whatever is being said here should be, uh, just listen to objectively, without judging yourself or without judging anything else. And if you feel that these concepts that are presented here are helpful to you, fine. You dwell upon them and adopt them. If you feel that they don't help you or you have something about it, well, you're welcome to discuss with me. Or if you think that they are just don't make sense, okay. Just keep them away, keep them aside. But uh, still, I am just, as I said, I make it a point to tell you whatever is involved in here in order to make you familiar with the whole tradition of the Vedanta. And uh, the tradition always has two aspects. One is what we call purely aspect of reasoning, etc. And there is also what we call a cultural aspect. And that cultural aspect will definitely vary from culture to culture. So, some of the things that are stated here may be considered to be cultural, peculiar to perhaps the Vedic tradition, peculiar to India as country, or peculiar to that particular time or society. However, we would try to explain to you the spirit also behind that particular cultural belief, and uh, this is something that you may have, you may wish to know, because perhaps the modern society and the Western society may be based altogether on different setup, and therefore the kind of setup that existed in ancient India or kind of setup that even exists today largely may not necessarily be applicable here. And therefore the kind of reverences and respects that Indian may be brought up with, Indians may be brought up with, they may not be present here. And there may be different kind of reverences and values here, you understand? And so where you find differences, all we have to say is, that you may take into account what is being said here and uh, accept whatever the spirit of it or whatever is helpful. And uh, so it, uh, you will be able to discriminate between uh, what is cultural and what is you might call universal. Although generally speaking, even a culture also is based on basic universal principles. Only what a, a society tries to do is take those universal principles and imbibe them into their life and that's what really makes a culture. That's what brings about various codes of conduct, that brings about various traditions, etc. So traditions and various codes of conduct existing in a society will reflect a certain universal outlook, which we will try to bring out. But then, um, since Bhagavad Gita or any text that you study always has a cultural aspect, like if you want to study Bible, you must study that time 
And you must study all the set setting that was there when Christ came and the people to whom that teaching was given and the manner and the atmosphere in which it was given and uh, without that you, you cannot separate the two completely. And similarly also to be able to appreciate Bhagavad Gita or Upanishad or any text, we should also know the various setting, the social setting, the psychological setting, the cultural setting also is, is necessary to know and so that you can grasp from it what is relevant and you can set aside what is not relevant in, a, in, a, in the present time or in a present particular context. Every individual has his or her own context also. Everyone has a different upbringing and therefore everyone has been brought up with some specific views on things. I may have my own views about my parents and I may have my own views about my teachers. I may have my own views about the society. And someone comes and says, may you look upon your mother as God, there may be a great revolt in me, it's possible. May you look upon your father as God, I may not see anything like that in my father, perhaps, it's possible. And so, if you find this kind of difficulties, then also, as I said, that doesn't make uh, this teaching in any way wrong or whatever, try to understand the spirit and uh, without judging or reacting to a thing. And if a given thing bothers you for whatever reason, then you are always welcome to clarify some of those points. But I go ahead and tell you deliberately just to make you aware of the setting because you may find verses in Bhagavad Gita which do make references to the culture. And there's a whole chapter like the 10th chapter of Bhagavad Gita which describes various glories of Lord and they are very largely uh, you know described around the different Purana or the mythological literature in India. There is a whole 11th chapter of Bhagavad Gita where the cosmic form of Lord Krishna, Lord is shown and then also the description is that is based on the whole, I mean the, the context of the Vedas and context of the Indian mythological literature. And thus there is a lot of reference in Bhagavad Gita which would be relevant only to the Indian context and you may, you may wish to know that. Also Bhagavad Gita is the dialogue between Lord Krishna and Arjuna and therefore there may be several things that may be said specifically to Arjuna. So there may be certain a context here which is personal or a topical or a situational to that particular situation as well as there is definitely a universal content. So Bhagavad Gita has largely a universal content but at the same time there is certain situational context also and there is a certain cultural context also and that also you should know which is situational and which is cultural. For example when Lord Krishna would tell Arjuna Therefore, Arjuna, you fight. It is strictly a situational context. Or even sannyasa, renunciation, sannyasa, it may be a cultural context. The way we look upon sannyasa or renunciation here may be somewhat different. As renunciation was possible in a given society, in the same form it may not be possible in another society as far as the form of renunciation is concerned. A renunciate in India would wear orange clothes and would shave his head and would lead in a very funny way perhaps. And the very same context situation may not be available as far as the practicing of renunciation is concerned. But we should know the spirit of renunciation 
and you must know that that spirit is definitely called for in order to gain the knowledge and in order to own up the knowledge. So which is the part which is cultural and which is the part, the, the, the aspect that is universal that we should know or what is the spirit behind the various cultural uh, uh, traditions that we may understand and so that you may be able to get this teaching in a proper context or you'll be able to gain, give, get a proper interpretation of the teaching in your own particular context. Because ultimately, this has to be translated into our own particular context. And we do not want that some of these references of culture, etc. should become blocks. It's possible sometimes that the mind may revolt at, you know, when some different culture comes and it may be very strange to, for us to listen, etc. But I would urge you that let your mind not be distracted by uh, the things which appear to you, as I said, cultural or different. But you may try to understand the spirit of them and see how that is applicable in your particular context. Shankaracharya's commentary also would have certain emphasis because that commentary was written 1200 years ago. And at that time a certain social condition and a certain philosophical outlook prevailed. And in, in the, on the basis of the prevailing uh, beliefs at that time or the prevailing interpretations of scriptures at that time, Shankaracharya wrote the commentary and therefore he was addressing himself to the people of that time who had certain understanding or who had certain opinions and therefore there may be refutal of certain opinions here, a refutal of certain points of view which you may feel is not called for in the present time which may very well be so, but that also. So when we study this kind of text, all these things become necessary to understand and we will try to clarify as we go along. But one of the important points that is made by Shankarajar here and will be made again and again is Sarva Karma Sanyasa Purvakat Atma Jnanat that there must be a renunciation of all the karma or all the duties. What is the concept of duty? The concept of duty comes from the concept of obligation. That, as the Vedas say, Jayamano vi Brahmana Trivir Runavan Jayade. That a Brahmana or a person, as he is even born, is born with threefold debt. The Pitrus. Pitrus means the parents and the ancestors. Why am I indebted to that? Because they have gifted me with this body. That they gave me birth. That they brought me up. They raised me. And they protected me. They nurtured me and nourished me and looked after me. This is supposed to be the duty of parents. And this is the duty that they perform. And therefore, I am indebted to them. <coughs> Second is called Rushi Ranam. Or debt towards the Rushis or the sages, those who gave us this knowledge, those who dedicated their life to the pursuit of knowledge and because of whom this storehouse of knowledge is available to us. Like all the sages, all the teachers, all the scientists, all the thinkers, all these people who dedicated their life to the pursuit of knowledge. And we at the moment enjoy the fruits of their labor. 
We don't need to do all the labor that Newton did, or that Einstein did, or that Pythagoras did, or that Plato or Aristotle may have done. They have left for posterity all that storehouse of knowledge of which we are the beneficiaries, we are the recipients of that knowledge. And therefore, when we study these books, we should know what an amount of effort that it's a grace or a blessing that we have that all this knowledge is available, whether it's knowledge of geography or history or geometry or science or, or Vedanta or Sanskrit language, whatever it is, it is a blessing that we have. And therefore, we are indebted to all those sages and all those teachers who continued, who maintained and continued this tradition of knowledge. And so that debt towards what we call the rishis or the sages. <coughs> and third is the debt towards what we call the devatas or the deities. What is devatas or deities of gods? In one way of looking upon gods as all the different elemental forces which are responsible for the orderly functioning of the universe. So different elements are there, like earth is an element, earth, it supports us, sustains us, nurtures us, nourishes us. There is water that quenches our thirst, that cleans our body and everything. There is fire that maintains the temperature in the body, that gives us warmth, that cooks food for us outside and inside also. Then there is air which sustains our life and that purifies everything. Then there is space that accommodates us. Then there is sun that gives us light, illumines the world for us. Then there is moon that nourishes the plants and vegetables and that gives us the, the, the coolness, pleasant, pleasure. And thus so many of these natural phenomena or the forces, elements are there which are constantly functioning in order to support our life. An awareness of this is necessary. Usually we take these things for granted. What's the big deal? We don't realize that we sow a few seeds in the earth and it gives us bountiful of crop, you know. Hey, what an amount, what a great gift it is. But then do we think that we are blessed by earth? We don't. We just take it for granted. That wind sustains our life, air sustains our life. Do we ever give a thought to that? No, we take it for granted. Veda says, no, we should not take this for granted. That we are a member of the whole universe. And all these universal phenomena are constantly supporting us. And that is why, that is how we are what we are. Ultimately, it is God alone, through all these forces, sustaining our life. As is said in Bhagavad Gita, He is the intelligence of the intelligent the strength of the strong, the austerity of the austere, the brilliance of the brilliant. He is the one who dwells in the hearts of all, because of him alone there is knowledge and the memory and everything. And thus, and the scriptures want us to be aware of these things and realize that that awareness alone will reflect in the sense of gratitude. So says there must be in our, in our life a sense of gratitude for the parents and ancestors a gratitude for the sages and the teachers and a gratitude for the Lord in the form of these different devatas or cosmic forces. And that gratitude should reflect itself in our life by way of actions. That gratitude may not merely be confined to say thank you. Somebody did something for me, I said thank you and that's the end of it. That's not enough. 
I should in fact do something in order to, refer- to, in order to return the favor. So the favor that we are constantly receiving, that we return that favor. And therefore, specific actions are enjoined in the life of an individual. Which actions are directed towards returning this favor or fulfilling this debt as it is called. And these actions are called duties. So in the duty, there is a sense of not obliging somebody. In the duty, there is a spirit of, spirit that I am in fact fulfilling my debt. That I already have received the obligation and therefore I am just returning the favor. And that's how the whole Hindu society, society in India was based on this concept of duty. It is not concept of demanding, but the concept of duty. Duty always requires me to take care of or take into consideration the rights and requirements and needs of others around me. Because I am a part of the setup. In this setup constant, on account of setup I am what I am and therefore I also do what is necessary as my share for the maintenance of the setup. This is called duty. And person is burdened with these duties. We do not know what our duties are because we do not know everything about the whole setup. And therefore, Vedas, the scriptures, tell us about the setup and tell us what our duties are. That's the reason why in the olden days, and even very often today also, boys were initiated at the age of eight into a ceremony wherein they were given a sacred thread and that was the time from which they began their study and learning and from that day also they have the duty to perform certain acts of worship. So the service to the parents, worship in the form of service to God and also studying and teaching, all of this became part of the duty. How do you fulfill your duty or how do you pay back the debt to the parents? By serving them. And how about the ancestors, the departed souls, also by giving, because it is believed that they are not completely dead, they have departed from this embodiment, they are someplace, and therefore giving whatever kinds of ablations or things that are required, oblations, to, to uh, you know, as, as given in the tradition. Now, this again traditional or belief system, that there is, there are so-called departed souls. And that when you do something here, that they receive the effect, you know. This is simply a belief system. And that would vary from one culture to another. Worship to the gods. And uh, respect and reverence for the teachers, learning from them and imparting this knowledge to others to maintain the tradition of teaching. So, there were there, all these duties. And therefore, when you are brought up in a society, which is so duty-conscious society, one becomes very conscious of the duty. And if you are not able to fulfill your duty, there is a sense of guilt. Very often people feel guilty. When they come away from home and come away to Gurukulam or Ashrama like this, then here they worry, what is happening to my parents? I left them behind me and then uh, I did not take care of them. What about my family? What about this? And then you may have a sense of guilt because you are not able to fulfill your duties. So this whole idea of duty creates in a person 
what we call a sense of guilt when we are not able to fulfill the duty. Therefore, and we will have occasions to discuss this in future again in course of discussion on Bhagavad Gita. When a time comes, when you are ready to completely devote yourself to knowledge, at that time it is necessary that a person must be made free from these demands upon him of the various duties which are imposed upon him by way of his fulfillment of debt towards the towards the parents and ancestors and gods and what not. And that particular ceremony where he can be, he will formally renounce the duties is called sannyasa. Sannyasa is this renunciation which is a particular ceremony. You take certain vows. In that vows there is actually a renunciation of all the duties. <coughs> Along with that is a renunciation of all the possessions. Along with that is a renunciation of all the rights. You know rights if you don't fulfill your duties. So there is no claims. So sannyasa means renunciation of all the claims. Even legally also in India, a sannyasi cannot legally claim any property. He is no more a member of family. And therefore, uh, suppose he happens to be in the actual life the son of a certain father who has left certain property, he cannot claim that. This is how even legally also it is looked upon. Meaning, sannyasa means renunciation of all the duties along with that renunciation of all the rights, all the claims, all the possessions. Why is it so? Then the mind becomes totally free. Free from any demands. Free from any worries or anxieties. But then, if you give up all possessions and all demands and all duties, then how will you survive? Then the society takes care of the sannyasi as far as the feeding is concerned. What it is need? Shelter and food. That is the need now remaining. And that need is provided by this society. Not so much the shelter but the food. And therefore these renunciates or the mendicants could go into a village and claim what we call bhiksha or they can beg food. It's not called beggary. It is called bhiksha. Bhavati bhiksha andehi. O mother, please give me bhiksha. You can translate it as alms, but it is bhiksha. And because he is a sannyasi or a sadhu. And therefore, a householder would consider, a, a woman in the house, for example, would consider her privilege to feed a sadhu or a sannyasi. She would feel happy and privileged to be able to have the occasion to feed or serve a sannyasi or a sadhu. And thus, there is a provision that the society will take care of this kind of renunciation so that he does not have to bother about uh, earning money, etc. in order to support his minimum needs. Of course, his needs are minimum. But even those minimum needs also require some means. And if he has to procure those means, then he is not totally available for this pursuit. And therefore, those minimum, need, minimum needs were provided by the society. This is the concept of sannyasa in India, which is prevalent today also. And uh, the spirit here is renunciation. That's the spirit. 
renunciation of what? Renunciation of all the claims, of all the rights, and basically a sense of possession. They believe that, and we will discuss that, that this kind of renunciation is nothing but a frame of mind. It is not even a certain lifestyle, but basically it is the spirit, the spirit of renunciation, which brings about a certain frame of disposition of mind, is very necessary for this knowledge and for abidance, for the gaining the knowledge and abidance in the knowledge. So Shankarajara says, this sannyasa or the spirit of renunciation, so this knowledge accompanied with this sannyasa or the spirit of renunciation is what Bhagavad Gita teaches us. Bhagavad Gita teaches us the, the spirit of renunciation. What is meant by renunciation? You will not find anywhere in Bhagavad Gita a renunciation in the form of wearing orange clothes or shaving head or a certain lifestyle. What Bhagavad Gita will talk about is the spirit of renunciation. What is that perception? What is the outlook? What is the understanding that is meant by renunciation? But that renunciation is called for in order to gain this knowledge and in order to own up this knowledge. This is a firm belief of Shankaracharya which he presents here in Bhagavad Gita throughout. And so it is said, Tatcha Sarva Karma Sanyasa Purvakat Atma Jnana Dharmad Bhavati that a complete cessation of all the suffering along with its cause is accomplished by the abiding knowledge of the self which knowledge requires as a precondition a total spirit of renunciation on the part of the seeker of the knowledge and this forms the very subject matter of Bhagavad Gita. <coughs> there is a little more also, we will continue that tomorrow. Om Purnamadaf Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyade Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayanam Sutra Bhashya Krutau Vande Bhagavantau Punaf Punaha Ishvaro Guru Ratmedi Murti Bheda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadvyakta Dehaya Dakshina Murtaye Namaha Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha Hari Om